Welcome to Unraveling Midlife. I'm your host, Sarah Spence. If this is your first time listening to the show, and even if it's not, thanks for joining me as I explore my own midlife by speaking with inspiring people about theirs. The show overall was inspired by the midlife crisis, Western astrology transits, though it's definitely not all about astrology because of the range of people I talk to. At the end of each episode, you'll hear a music track by me that links into the discussion in some way. The astrological transits I've mentioned are phases that everyone goes through in life, specifically starting in the mid to late 30s through the early to mid 40s. It can be the opportunity to confront our biggest fears, find our way through the foggy times, and bounce us from one extreme to the other. Ain't life fun? That's all on top of the phase that comes around the age of 28 to 29 to 30 called the Saturn return that we reference during this conversation. With today's guest, I have a bit of a fangirl moment. Ciel Grove is an artist, a teacher, a musician, a scientist, and a healer, a trickster, dream healer, Buddhist, and wisdom keeper, as you'll hear during our conversation. Through a friend, I came across Ciel's podcast called The Knowing. When I first listened to Ciel's conversations with her co-host Alison, there was a sense of relief in being able to relax into listening to the deep topics of conversation that I honestly wish I had plenty more of in my life. When I heard them speak in a recent episode about the feedback they were getting from all around the world, I got in touch and here we are. So welcome, Ciel Grove, to Unraveling Midlife. Thanks so much for joining me. That's so nice to be here, Sarah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, um, it, you're my first guest who I don't know personally, but someone who's... Oh, amazing. Had, yeah, but had quite an impression um, on me as I've been driving, because I've been listening to your podcast, The Knowing, and number one, being completely inspired, um, and it's not number one, it's an aside, the music that your podcast opens with, I love. Isn't it, it amazing? I know. <laughs> it's so joy awesome. up within me. <laughs> I <laughs> know. Totally. That you end up having that I just sit there and go, yes. And I mean, I, I picked oh. a few words to share with listeners I mean your your intro about healing and insight living from our own internal wisdom with the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times what else is there I like life? those words <laughs> ah, I'm so glad it, it connects with you my my partner is like this crazy musical genius and I came up with those words and then he created the music as like this emotional reflection of how he engaged with those words. Like it's, he's, he's so amazing at being able to sort of translate emotion into music. And, and it, it did have this sort of synesthetic like um, quality of like them merging together. I think that like, I'm so glad it connected with you. Cause I just, I love the way it, it, it all came together. So. It's actually funny because. I needed a creative project. I wanted a creative project and I got really into podcasts, but I'm a musician. So oh, doing podcast stems out of 
wanting to share music, but knowing that music's pretty specific. You either like something or you mm-hmm. don't. And I had all the stuff that I wanted to talk about too, um, in terms right. of astrology studies and just talking with interesting people. And right. I loved what you're talking about. Can you tell me, how did you start your podcast? I mean, I Googled you, I looked at your website and went, cool, you do these amazing mm-hmm. cards too. Tell me about what you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I generally call myself an integrative therapist as a sort of, I suppose, approachable designation for people. I mean, it still requires a bit of definition, but I, I have a pretty broad educational experience uh, I'm a biologist and then a classically trained musician and artist and um, f- sort of floundered for a lot of my early years and, and then ended up taking another master's in integrative medicine down in San Francisco. And while I was there, um, I was approached by a shamanic healer who was at the same school and she said, um, Spirit has told me I'm supposed to teach you, you're supposed to be my first student and Um, I entered into a five-year apprenticeship with her as a a traditional initiate in her lineage. So she's from uh, Bolivia. And yeah, like I sometimes call myself a shamanic practitioner, but I am very uh, overall a a healer. And I mean, I, I use that in the really traditional sense of the word that healing classically was, um, helping people, come into contact with and and utilize the medicine that's innate to them. So for yourself, you know, your medicine is going to be music. And and we have lost that understanding in conventional contemporary society that um, medicine is not something that takes away symptoms. Medicine is is what allows us to have catharsis and to move through, you know, soul awakening experiences and stuff. And so that's really what I I do with people now. I mean, I'm a herbalist as well. So I I certainly, you know, like use different parts of of the healing or different aspects of healing at different times. But um, the big thing is, is guiding people to connections with their soul uh, experiences of wholeness again, reintegrating parts of themselves that they've they've cast off. So, I work with people all over the world now in my private practice. But then I work predominantly with um, indigenous communities locally. So, I do four days of work with um, uh, Sequatchie people that are within this local territory. My family's been here for six generations, and we live on their traditional territory and. I have a very deep respect for indigenous traditions and I've been gifted with so much from those lineages that it really feels great to be um, really attending to my, my local community in that way as best as I can. So, Wow, that's incredible. How inspiring. <laughs> it's been a nice path, actually. I mean, a, a treacherous path at times, but <laughs> definitely a meaningful one. So. <laughs> Well, that word treacherous like reminds me of what the basis of, of my podcast is about, is about my own kind of walking through those murky times of the midlife astrology transits, um, primarily like starting with the Pluto square where the Pluto comes to 90 degrees and moves around back and forth. Um, followed by Neptune doing the same thing and then um, Uranus coming to 180 degrees and maybe shaking us up and I'm not quite there yet and neither are you because I'm a little bit older than you but I'm, I'm interested in what your experience of 
kind of this whole time has been, I mean, compounded by the fact that the world has been a very different place in the last 15 months Mm -hmm. uh, than it was Mm -hmm. before. And you being based in the middle of BC, uh, quote, in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. how that's been for you, because you're kind of coming towards the end of your Pluto square where you might have been facing huge fears. I know I was during mine. Um, How Mm -hmm. has that been for you and how has your work helped support you? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a, an incredibly intense time. There's such intense beauty to living where we live, and especially during this pandemic. I mean, we, we only moved here to the, the middle of nowhere in this huge piece of land um, in 20, the beginning of 2019. And so we had been living in, in the local town, like sort of in an urban area and then moved here and then the pandemic happened. And I mean, you couldn't ask for a more incredible place to exist, quite honestly, where I didn't have to wear a mask until it was about nine months into the pandemic, you know, because I almost instantly got to work from home entirely, you know, and so there was a lot less pressure actually on my life where I didn't have to commute for two hours a day. Um, and could be home with my kids. I have an 18 month old and a f- almost five year old. But at the same time, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I guess I didn't have the astrological language to, to call it what it was. I love astrology. I just don't necessarily know that much about it. Um, but I would read my own horoscope and it was like, you are going through this, this massive, there was a lot to do with Chiron too, happening in my personal chart at the same time. And what I kept reading was like, you know, you have these, these essential core wounds that are emerging and coming to the surface and you, you can't put them down anymore and you can't, you know, pretend they're not there. And, you know, even though for the sort of maintenance of peace in your life, you might feel like you want to say, you know, that's not really happening. Um, I carry a lot of, I work with a lot of trickster energy. And so I, I knew about myself that I'm not inclined to seek peace over, over truth necessarily. I, I I'm okay with conflict and chaos and stuff. And so what it, the whole process really translated into was um, very difficult uh, confrontations with members of my family, quite honestly, of like, this is a label and a story that I got given when I was a kid, because it was not a particularly easy kid um, that, I'm not okay with anymore. And they, I, they place me in a, a sort of box and containment that I don't think is a, an appropriate um, definition of me. And really, Sarah, like it was, it was incredible. I mean, I don't know how people go through experiences like this without the tools that my teachers have given me in terms of knowing how to do soul retrieval for myself, how to actually communicate with my past self, how to um, you know, bridge the gap basically between that part of myself that I fragmented from and who I am in this moment and actually how to call her forward to, to be with me in, in this time, you know? And I mean, it translated into like so much compassion and understanding for other people doing that intensive of soul retrieval work. And as always, immediately, you know, I had clients who were also going through similar processes, not always, certainly not the same, but there's this sort of idea in shamanic practice of the wounded healer that when you go through something difficult, you develop the medicine and the understanding to help other people contact the medicine that they need to go through those transitions. So 
I mean, it's, it's felt so meaningful and, and culminated in like counseling with my mom, you know, and, and talking about how she, you know, had an affair with my science teacher when I was in grade eight and left. She just abandoned us, you know, and then told me that I was a selfish child for saying that that was not okay and, and acting out, you know? And so there was like a, a real processing of like, like it felt like I was like vomiting for most of the last year of going, I don't want this shit. This is, this is not, am I allowed to swear on this? Sorry. I do swear often. <laughs> um, I don't want this, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And, you know, in shamanic practice, we spend so much you know, it is so essential to become aware of the inner terrain and what is aligned and what is incongruent. And, and I guess my experience through this process is like this incredibly almost excruciating awareness of like, whoa, this is a piece that's totally not congruent. It's, it's not me. It's someone else's story. And I don't want her to feel guilt or, or, or bad for what happened, but it, it was like this bringing it up. And I was terrified. It took me months to ask my mom to go to counseling with me, you know, because I actually figured that she would just tell me that it was my problem and that I needed to go away. But, you know, and, and when you talk about that fear, like it was this just like panic of, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah. That, it brings up uh, quite a few good points that I think a lot of people will relate to like number one being put into a box I think most of us have felt at some point that we've been put into a box by our families um yeah my parents broke up when I was fairly young not in the kind of situation that you had um but my I had a, a dad and a stepmother and sometimes I felt like they would gang up on me um and that was that was challenging um but also that kind of concept of soul retrieval. I'm so glad you brought it up because it's something I haven't thought about for a little while, but I know last year when, I mean, we in New Zealand haven't had the same kind of lockdown as uh, is ongoing really in Canada. Um, But we did, we were very locked down in comparison for a couple of months. Um, And I remember I did, I started um, some work with the New Zealand First Light Flower Essences and one of them is called Soul Retrieval and I I worked with that and it felt like there were all these different parts of myself coming home and I found that when you described your soul retrieval it really clicked in for me what that did and, and I'm thinking oh well maybe when it's right again I might go back to that and do some work with that. Mm. it's such a I mean I I joke with my mom now you know that the soul retrieval process especially I I suppose in a shamanic sense is is really part of the um, it's a reparenting process where we're internalizing the mother and we're internalizing the father in our true adulthood right and we're reclaiming um, a sense of responsibility for the parts of ourselves that did not get received or um, appreciated and seen and, and validated, right? And this is never, it, it's not engaged with for the purposes of blame or, you know, feeling like a victim. I mean, certainly we, we need to acknowledge that there was pain there, but we don't stay in the pain. You know, we, we validate it and then we move into what was needed that didn't happen, right? And, you know, I joke with my mom now that when I called my 
soul self back. Like I was a, I was an excruciatingly fearful child. Like I was afraid of everything all the time. I couldn't sleep. I was, you know, awake all night long and worried about things. And, you know, I, I just, I was a panicked kind of anxious kid and it was hard to parent me. And I get that, like I completely do. But when I called her back to me, especially my seven, eight-year-old self, and I could feel her with me again. She's not sitting in the past waiting for someone to mother her or father her the way that she needed. She, she knew that she could come back to me. And then, you know, she was, I, I was having this experience one night of being afraid and I'm trying to parent myself and going, oh my God, like, this is so difficult because, it, it, you know, having, we, we all say that we want, you know, ultimate power, ultimate um, sort of alignment and expression of our true self. But that actually means that we have to attend to all the parts of us that, you know, maybe somebody else couldn't attend to because they were really challenging and everybody's got those parts, but um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that she is my responsibility. Now, all parts of me are my responsibility, my 24 year old addict self, my, you know, like whatever piece of me now has returned or is in the process of returning. And I have to figure out like, what is it that she actually needs? And it's this beautiful dialogue with ourselves. If we are open to it to say, you know, what, what happened must be grieved. Right. And, and sometimes that has to the grieving or, or maybe the grieving can happen with the person who was part of the wounding. And sometimes that doesn't happen and that's okay. You know, but the grieving still has to happen and we have to give ourselves permission. And then these parts come back and I mean, again, in the shamanic tradition, they come back with our greatest gifts. They don't come back just with the pain, but they come back with something really beautiful, you know, and I don't know if you experienced this in this transit, but when I allowed the fear to come back in and to give it a different receptivity and respond to it differently, all of a sudden there was this like total, and, and maybe that's where the podcast came out, like a total fearlessness, like if like, I don't have to worry about anything like, and I, you know, decided my partner and I decided to record an album and I decided to like start putting myself out in this totally different way, you know, because it was like, I don't have to be afraid of fear. It's no longer keeping me in this like very kind of predictable locked experience of habit. You know, it was like, I can just do whatever I want, you know? And, and, yeah, it was, it's, it's so liberating, so painful, but like, so, so, so completely liberating. So. I hear you. My biggest fear, I feel like after three and a half years, I've just had the courage to kind of step up and have the conversations that I needed to have where I realized that most of what was going on was all inside my head. It wasn't actually the reality that I had been thinking was happening, was mm -hmm. not happening. And so I was interested when you talked earlier about how you work a lot with the trickster energy, because that's what came to my mind was, and I was having a conversation with someone the other day that mind is such a trickster and it takes so much <laughs> oh, to just keep coming back to the hang on, <laughs> hang on, you're trying to trick uh -huh. me up again. And I can uh -huh. it's like get older and I so clearly see the patterns that I, I've got tripped over by this pattern again. <laughs> it's I you know when my when I first started working with my teacher and she was like this is your this is your primary energy I have you know many other allies guides you know energies that I work with for sure 
but the trickster energy, the coyote energy is, is like, you know, what, what truly is my archetypal inheritance in an energetic sense. And, you know, she'd always say to me, like, you can do this very poorly and a, and a bad trickster is, is a nasty piece of work. And I know that because I used to be a kind of nasty piece of work where a trickster's capacity, just like the, the fool in the tarot, you know, is that there's this immense intelligence and this absolute stupidity, you know, at the same time is that like, I can do the dumbest things and say, you know, the meanest things without even knowing that I'm, I'm poking in right the spot where somebody doesn't want to get poked. Like I have an uncanny ability to like get right between the, the, the pieces of someone's armor and poke something that they didn't even know that they had. And I think that's why I was such a difficult kid. I've always done this. I've always been able to be like, right into there and and people you know of course understandably don't particularly like it right so that my teacher was like you you know in her lineage she was acknowledged as a healer when she was three and and taken to the Aymara people and they trained her for since she was three and she's like you haven't had any training and basically you've you've learned how to use this energy really poorly right but good trickster energy, what you were just doing, you know, of like actually being able to, to laugh about it and go, ah, oh, wait a second. Like here I am in my pattern again. That's, you know, it's been my process to learn how to do that with people, which, you know, hopefully feels like a lot of humor and lightness and stuff, but at the same time, constantly going into these spots that are the places we don't want people to go into, but doing it in a way that that provokes humor. And, and I suppose it's one of the things that I love more than anything about the Indigenous people that I work with is that despite the trauma, the chaos of, of their life experiences, that they will always laugh about something. Like we always laugh in every session. I'm, I'm laughing with people and we're not laughing at the atrocities in their life or, or the, the horrors of what they've experienced, but there is still this retained wisdom from those traditional medicine systems of the trickster energy, which is like, if, if you are engaging with trickster energy in a negative way, you're going to be taking it too seriously, you know, and that actually will um, kind of confound your process, right? We do have to be able to laugh at it and go, Oh, here I am again. And here's this thing poking me again, or this person or whatever. And, and that sense of humor is, is actually, you know, it's essential for the process to unfold. And Tom Robbins has this quote, the author, which I really love. And I can't remember the first part of it, but it ends with, you know, if we had the, the wisdom to, to stop taking ourselves so seriously, you know, we can heal. And that's, he is such a trickster energy. And it's, it's so essential, I think, that we remember that even, and I'm, I'm sure that I'll be sort of castigated as someone not taking the calamities of life seriously, but I don't think we do, we don't function well as human beings when we don't have humor, you know, through difficult processes, especially. Yeah, that, that is so true. Um, what, what also comes to mind is that trickster energy. I was listening to um, one of your podcasts about uh, internalized capitalism. And, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I quickly, I was sitting on a bus because I was wearing a mask, but I was actually sitting on a bus with other people, um, which we can do here. Um, and nice. And, and keep pausing it and going back and I've got to write this down. And I know that it was, <laughs> uh, it was a, a quote that 
that your conversation partner and your podcast, Alison, had found on Facebook and we can't, it would be lovely to know who wrote it. Um, so, you know, mm. email us if you find out or, or you know. Internalized mm-hmm. capitalism looks like feeling guilty for resting. Your self-worth is largely based on your career, placing productivity before health, believing that hard work equals happiness, feeling lazy even when you're facing pain, trauma or adversity, and using busyness as a way to avoid your needs. I just thought that was just so classic as I sat on the bus nodding, probably looking weird. To the <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it was a good meme. I know. I think Allison found that. I think as you said on Facebook or something. So she shared it and said, you know, the feedback that people got. Just I think the sense of validation of like, yes, those are you know aspects of a value system that we all recognize that we've internalized for for better or worse, right? And it's it's great to hear that in the work that you're doing with Indigenous people and. And indeed, some of the work that people I know are doing here with um, with the Māori iwi are, and they're totally different kind of backgrounds, etc. But that there is that medicine that is still there that is slowly um, coming up. I know in New Zealand that there's always more and more talking about how we can bring um, Te Tiriti, which is the Treaty of Waitangi, um, and bringing things more into a more holistic view. And mm-hmm. I'm so at the beginning of understanding any um, of of that, but I'm, I'm lucky that I'm surrounded uh, in a conscious festival that I've been helping organise uh, that slowly learning about those things and really coming back to to that centered place of how community works but it's such a re-patterning like it's so different from that internalized capitalism and the externalized capitalism to view the world in such a different way but step by step Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I think that I mean with absolute uh immense appreciation for you know traditional medicine systems traditional practices and perspectives I think maybe the most important thing uh, from my perspective Sarah is that what have worked in the past actually isn't going to work now and what we need now is not just a reactivation I mean certainly that needs to happen a, a reawakening of those traditional perspectives but but also to recognize the limitation of it. Those systems worked within tribal communities of, you know, maybe 60 to 150 people, perhaps. And now we're looking at, you know, a a global community experience that is so far beyond that. So the idea that at this particular epoch in time, you know, as as a species, I think we need to be gathering all possible medicine. Everything needs to be brought to the table in terms of understanding what we need to do and how we need to consciously respond to the crises that we're facing. And we are facing multiple, multiple, you know, existential crises as a species on this planet. And we need all the wisdom. So, yes, we want to bring in traditional wisdom, but traditional wisdom alone is not going to save us. It's not going to figure out how to respond to the situation because it functioned and applied within tribal communities where 
you know, indigenous people had beautiful wisdom and incredible awareness, and they fought with local tribes constantly. You know, the, the local tribes here warred constantly between each other because they were very tribal in their dynamics. That is not good nor bad. It's just the way that it was back then, right? We are all being asked to exist in a global civilization right now and go beyond tribal dynamics. So, you know, what we need to do is is not just the medicine from back then. We're going to be, we are being called into really high human capacities that maybe haven't been uh, made manifest on the planet in the way that, you know, I do believe that we're going to make them manifest, but it's it's not not about going back, you know, often... I hear people like, we need to go back to that time when life was simple. We can't go back. It's it's not even possible. And I don't think that any of us, if we actually knew how challenging life was back then, you know, I mean, as I said, my family's been here for six generations and they're pioneer families who, you know, starved in the winters partially, you know, and 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 really struggled because life was hard here. So we don't want to go back. I don't think anybody actually does, but how do we call all the medicine and, and make wise decisions and, and responses in this moment that are, are new? Like they haven't existed on the planet before. What we need right now and the medicine that we need is actually, it's only going to occur through individuals coming into their medicine and calling their spirits back so that they are meeting this with, with wholeness and, and not you know divisive, tribal kind of perspectives and and psychological states you know as we may have we all historically inhibited right so it's it's a really it's a wonderful place to be in and it's it's also very challenging in that like we don't have a map you know like nobody's done this before and I, I don't know if you heard on, on one of the podcasts I think I was just talking about my personal story and the first time I encountered a a shaman from from Mexico and he said you know this is your path you are I can't remember what he called me but he said I'm basically I walk between worlds and 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 he's at, at the time I was a, a bit of a prepper like I, I had an entire closet full of like white rice and Mars bars like no no doubt that no joke that's what I thought I should be like packing away to trade for people if, if the apocalypse happened and uh, and he was like please don't be so afraid of like you know things happening he's like we've done this, you know, 77,000 times and we failed 77,000 times. And this meaning this transition in consciousness, you know, from our, our mammalian limbic, you know, tribal consciousness to truly unified uh, collective consciousness um, through our higher human capacities. Right. And he's like, we might get it this time. He said, I think we will, but we don't know, you know, and we keep trying because consciousness wants to evolve and it wants to go into greater states of complexity. But he's like, don't be afraid of it. Just come to the table, you know, and, and learn what your medicine is, which I think is essential for us all. I feel like I'm still doing that. I feel like with these midlife transits, like I kind of knew and I was getting there and then the rug just got totally pulled out from under my feet. <laughs> I moved cities, mm-hmm. started again and I've had to rebuild and go, hang on, what, mm-hmm. what, what is my medicine? It's, it's been somewhat of a, a humbling experience and, a, well, surely I've got lots of, hmm, maybe it's just time for some more soul retrieval work because. <laughs> because <laughs> really, yeah. And, you know, there's a wonderful book out uh, with Bill Plotkin of the Animus Institute. Um, and I don't know if you've encountered his work before. It's in, 
he's in Utah um, and he's, he does, you know, soul journeys and, and uh, a version of uh, like a vision quest and stuff. And I've loved his work for a long time. I'm actually, hopefully um, going to get him to come onto the podcast as a guest. And he recently put out a book about, you know, what he calls the descent to soul. And the thing Sarah is all of in that episode, when we were talking about internalized capitalism, all of those things, you know, the statements about what internalized capitalism is, they're true. But capitalism does serve a kind of purpose for us, right? It, it does something for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so uh, allegiant and sort of comfortable with it in a sense, you know. I was getting off the bus when you were talking about that on the podcast. And I was thinking, yeah, what do I get at these uh, we get to kind of go into desire and go into pleasure and we have the internet and we have shopping and surely there's deeper, deeper. we've got the ability to connect across the world to actually deepen our understanding and talk about medicine as well. So I suppose, I mean, when I say, you know, that it gives us something, we have biological drives right the drive towards pleasure away from pain and when we are in our our tribal mind our, our limbic mammalian mind you know which all of us have and that gets activated especially when we're in stress um, we want to move away from suffering and we want to move towards pleasure and so capitalism offers us that right it's like oh you don't like this here take this pill or go watch this or go buy this right it does satisfy that very biological drive in all of us to avoid pain. Now, the problem is, is that we have now, what we have is, is a backlog of grief that never got processed, a backlog of, of suffering and a mental health crisis, which is not that we have too much of, of mental health concerns, is that we don't know how to feel them at all. We don't know how to be anxious. You know, it, when people come to me and they say, I, I've got an anxiety disorder, I say, well, no, you don't actually know how to feel anxiety. Anxiety is completely normal, as is every other human emotion, you know, and we don't teach or learn how to, to feel those things, to suffer well, right? We learn how to placate and remove symptoms, and that's what we see as medicine, totally, you know, like, how do I just ignore? And so capitalism lets us do that, and we kind of like it, right? So there's a deal with the devil that we make in that is that, yeah, we never get to be happy with ourselves. We never get to be in this present moment, but we don't have to feel pain. And the, the growing up and Bill Plotkin's work is all about growing up and becoming a true adult, you know, and he's like, that in order to do that process, we have to meet our soul and our soul has this, this suffering that it, it needs us to pay attention to just like, you know, in a soul retrieval, when you call the piece that got banished back to you, she comes back with the emotion that didn't get to be processed. It's still stuck there. She's, she, in the shamanic sense, you know, we have no linear time. She's back there going, uh, my old self was back there in that position going, I'm pissed and I'm frustrated and I'm sad, but nobody gave her the audience or the receptivity to actually process those emotions, right? So I, in my infinite intelligence as a spirit, knew that I needed to cut off from her because I couldn't keep feeling that all the time. And so I banished her, right? And said, you know what? I don't know how to deal with your emotions. And this is our task right now as human beings is how do we learn how to feel these things well, not figure out ways to get away from them, 
But, you know, and I, I do think that the midlife transits, I, I think the Saturn return transit, you know, these are these offerings from spirit to be like, hey, do you want to meet your life fully, you know, and it feels like death, because it is, it's, it's the death of, of who we thought we were and the ego self that we constructed so as to not feel those things, right. But Pluckin's whole work is, is right now in educating people to do basically soul retrieval work, you know, which he calls the descent to soul. And he's like, it's not a fast process. It's not a four day vision quest. You know, it is this willingness to go into our darkness, what we deem as our darkness, but you know, which actually holds the, the most magical and beautiful aspects of our nature, but we need help, right? We need, um, we need medicine. We need support. I'm, currently in this process of, of putting together um, an online training and, and turning this into like a, I don't know if it's going to be a course or, or like a group, you know, that meets and says, how do we do this descent to soul and what medicines do we need? And how do we um, practice these things? Because it's, it's not the same as saying, here's a group for anxiety, or here's a group for depression, right? The implicit desire in those kind of interventions or offerings are how are you going to get away from your suffering? And this now is how are we going to go into it fully and not have it overtake us so that we are paralyzed or immobilized by the intensity of it, but so that it, it clarifies what is us and what is not us. And we can actually go through this, this death process, you know, that we need to go through as a civilization to say, you know, that value system, that system of meaning that whatever it was, it can't serve us anymore. And, and it's all of us. It's not one group. It's not one country. It's not one race or gender. It's all of us. It is implicit in how we are as a species, you know, and we're going through this mass transformation and we need, we need tools, right? So, and they're there. I do believe they're there. They're not common knowledge, but they're definitely there. Yeah, the, definitely some of the things that you're saying are resonating with some of the other teachings that uh, I've been involved with um, in a medicine woman tradition, but through the um, shamanic and esoteric studies that started with the New Zealand uh, first light flower essences. And mm-hmm. I remember being at retreats where we talked a lot about Ngāti Rā, the one people, the one people all mm. come together and the medicine mm-hmm. isn't there. And there's so many aspects um, or, or paths to finding that medicine in different ways from different people. And it can mm-hmm. be presented very differently. And I know in my experience, and I've probably judged myself, oh, I judge myself a lot <laughs> in terms <internalized casualty. laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> um, but that's one of my things I'm, I'm working on, continually mm-hmm. sandpapering away. Um, mm-hmm. that, that I've explored in different paths um starting with like astrology and then channeling and crystals and then got totally into yoga and lived in ashrams and and then kind of came back out into different forms of yoga and then and then this medicine woman um shamanic kind of look and I wasn't really that comfortable with shaman or that word shamanic and it's become more and more and that's kind of ended up feeding me back into astrology which I was originally as a teenager but now there's all these online tools and I wasn't didn't have to interpret a chart from a book anymore (laughs) Um, yeah you just google them and you can get all sorts of (laughs) 
instant information yeah totally yeah so I guess and and I guess I'm in my process it's a it's okay I'm following what feels light and what the path is for me and there isn't actually any wrong answer and, and now I've come to a, a teaching also western canadian based really um we are of taking the subconscious thought forms out of the body and, and a method for that and I realize actually it's all the same I just need to delve and focus mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at least that's what arising right now for mm-hmm. me I I really like the sound of uh, the work that you're creating for people to access what's really me and what's not because I think that sometimes and I have a lot of air in my natal chart so I'd say I think okay. quite a bit <laughs> um, <laughs> <and> mental processes <laughs> jumping around right right no I think what I heard and in, in what you were saying so is I mean all of these the roads to you know Mecca or, or healing or whatever they all have this immense wisdom in them something that I always pull into my practice both from shamanic um, teachings uh, but also from uh, Shambhala Buddhism lineage that I've been connected to for a long time is this ultimate importance of being on the lookout for self-importance right and that's uh, the the warnings that you know emerged out of Chagan Trumpa's stuff and then teachings in the 1960s and 70s he's like the west will be undone by spiritual materialism which is the co-opting of spiritual practice for self-importance, for feeling better about the self, for, you know, like having social status or feeling superior, whatever we use it for, right? Getting away from our, our unpleasant, you know, suffering sort of experiences is we're using it in the same way that, you know, we would use a pharmaceutical drug, right? To placate symptoms. And and that, um, having walked down the, the path of spiritual materialism for quite a while and then being thankfully smacked out, out of it or, or becoming aware of it, you know, is something that I think is, is really critical right now is, is we ask why, you know, why are we engaging with these practices? And something that I say to clients all the time is the, the question, how do you know that healing has happened for you? You know, we, because healing is not it, it's, it doesn't have a singular meaning, right? Healing within uh, Western pharmaceutical medicine is a removal of symptoms, right? Or an avoidance of death. In the shamanic practice, you can die and you can still have the symptoms and you're totally healed, right? It's, it's, it's a very different experience that is not looking at just the physical realm in terms of assessing, you know, what processes have uh, been undertaken effectively, right? Healing though, in, in sort of how I conceptualize it, should result in greater unification with all that is. It should result in greater compassion. And that is ultimately every tool that we use, I think it's important that we ask, is this unifying me with people and not just the people that we like and just the people that you know are easy for us to actually affiliate with, but it, does it unify us with all sentient beings, with the natural earth, you know, with existence as a whole? Does it actually break down the the sort of fabricated ego barriers between us and them, those tribal barriers, right? And again, I think this is the the big call that we're being asked to right now to to accomplish is, is, I mean, that that widening of our sphere of understanding of who we are to, to relate ourselves more fully to our global community, right? And it is absolutely possible, I think, if if we use those tools to to break down where we have judgment still for ourselves, for other people, you know, where we are still othering 
And, and um, you mentioned the deck that I have this called the knowing and it's an Oracle deck, but <laughs> I think a deck that pisses people off frequently because I get these emails from people, you know, there's a section in the deck that are called the others and there's um, virus and bacteria and ego in there. And, and there'll be another card added um, this spring to the deck as well in the second edition that I'm putting out. And I get these emails from people being like, I hate these cards. You know, somebody wrote me once and was like, I burnt them, you know, and I, I, I don't think they should be in the deck. And I was like, well, good for you for deciding how this should look, right? Because our, our, our righteous minds love othering, right? We go, oh, I'm not like that person, or I'm not like that being, or, you know, not to be flippant in a global pandemic, but viruses are as natural as anything else, you know, and they are actually a part of the human or the, the ecological system, a very important part, you know, they play an essential role. Yes, they cause death and disease. Absolutely. But what humans have done and the, the constructs that have allowed capitalism to perpetuate are, are really othering, right? It's like, oh, we don't have to pay attention to the impact on this system of nature when we're doing something. We've compartmentalized things so, so easily in a sense, you know, because, then it allows us to do whatever we want, basically. And now it's like, we can't, we can't do that anymore. We can't pretend that we don't see that, you know, these parts are, are part of the whole and letting those parts come back in, letting our ego self come back in as a sacred thing. You know, it's, it's not a, an aberration, a mistake. You know, I, I don't think that human beings would exist and have evolved to this state if we shouldn't have had an ego self, but what do we do with it? You know, we've been either aggrandizing it or trying to push it down forever and and have we ever actually learned to relate really healthfully to it right and i do think that's the the task at hand and that you know we're aspiring to this this state that is compassion based and it's we don't have to like people but we do have to accept that they are supposed to be here they are part of the entire you know process and that they're not supposed to look and act and function like we are, you know, that would be ridiculous because they are playing a particular role. Right. And yeah. Anyway, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I liked what you were saying about the spiritual materialism and the awareness of ego. I've always had this theory that there's two types of people, very, very general, <laughs> but there's those of us who, um, maybe aren't so confident in ourselves and um, a lot of self-judgment and maybe don't speak up and go, hey, this is me and my power and uh -huh. I just did this uh -huh. facilitating the other day and I said I got up and I took a leaf out of someone else's book whose workshop I'd been to um, a couple of weeks ago and went, this is me, this is my experience, this is me and my power Um without saying exactly those words uh, and it felt different and good to go hey this is me I'm showing up this is who I am rather than just mm -hmm. going up and going, oh hey I'm Sarah we're gonna do some mm -hmm. singing today uh, and being very humble and maybe not kind of shining my true light so there's those that mm -hmm. have maybe the uncomfortableness of going yes this is me and my power and then there's others mm -hmm. and maybe this is the spiritual materialism who go hey this is me and my power uh <laughs> I've got this that the other thing you should come do this and mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and pay me this and and so it's 
it's like the coping mechanism is, oh no, actually I'm small. I'm not good enough to shine. Mm -hmm. or, hey, this is mm -hmm. me. I'm great. And actually then maybe mm -hmm. not looking at other aspects of themselves. And I've kind of had yeah. that sense for, you know, decades now. I wondered what your yeah. take would be on that kind of observation. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, I say to clients often, especially if I'm ever working with with couples, um, there's this sort of almost jigsaw quality to the way that human personalities function in the world, if I can explain this well, especially within, you know, the microcosm of a relationship, you'll see that there'll be one person who has all the power and has, is sort of dominating or most of the power and is, you know, doing what they want often. And this is not all the time, but it's very classical that, you know, someone is, is making more decisions or having more authority or whatever, right? And the other person will often be inhabiting that archetypal form, as you mentioned, of someone who's like, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what I want and, and show up, you know, and, and they are um, not allowing for, but there's, there's almost a, a comfortable dance, right? And like knowing where you sit in relationship, in a sense, to the, to the other people that you're in relationship with. Going back to what I feel is these midlife crises or, or calibration experiences is going, I don't agree that this is the shape my puzzle piece is supposed to take. This is just the shape that I have been taking my whole life. And so you try to change your puzzle piece though, and it forces somebody else to have to change, right? All of a sudden the person who is, you know, maybe full of power and confidence has to actually go, wait a second, maybe I, I have to change a little bit, right? And that's, it's deeply uncomfortable because for better or worse, again, the, the mid-section sort of uh, aspects of our brains, we like what we know. For better or worse, we want what we know and we will recreate what we know and what we were programmed into over and over and over again until we you know, really go into self-awareness and self, uh, into consciousness to say, okay, just because this is familiar, does it actually mean that it's something that I want, right? But every time somebody moves the, the shape, the story of, of who they are inhabiting, it does force a recalibration in everyone around them. And that's, it's terrifying, right? Because it often results in um, breaking of relationships, shifting of dynamics, you know, and, and it's, it's not what everybody else maybe asked for or wanted at that moment, right? And, and um, you're kind of enforcing it and, and feel uncomfortable because, again, we are we're social creatures who, who are tribally oriented in that sense of like we, we find our safety through our midbrain in those kind of relationships and predictability and, and belonging in those relationships. In the shamanic tradition, you know, when we're really moving into our full power, is a, it sounds terrible, but it, it's a, you know, like you don't have a, a family, you don't have a belonging, you don't find your belonging out here at all. It is truly just through the alignment with your own set of, of values and the way that you know you must show up in order to be impeccable in the world, that that's where your belonging comes from. And you're belonging to spirit, you're belonging to all that is basically is that you've transcended those, those tribal needs and going, oh, God, it'll make people uncomfortable if I change, right? Um, we, in Bill Pluckin's work, he's like, we all remain adolescents if we are trying to stay with the status quo and just not, you know, push up against people. You going into that workshop going, hey, I'm taking up more space, whether you realize it or not, will create a change in other people, probably inspirational in nature, you know, but 
it may, especially within your close relationships, force someone else to have to recalibrate, which is not comfortable. But again, capitalism says, don't do the hard thing. You know, here, eat this, take this. We've been doing this for millennia of like not doing the uncomfortable thing and thinking that that's a good idea. You know, we are made for hard things as human beings. And our prefrontal cortex especially does not develop uh, especially well if we don't do hard things. We, and, and we need to we need to do this, you know, push, push on those barriers that it's not about, you know, pushing on other people and telling them how wrong they are, but of actually coming into your own fullness, right? And, and asking what that actually is. Or for the example that you gave, the people that are taking up too much space, you know, of going, wait a second, like, am I completely self-absorbed and not act- actually recognizing the impact that my behaviors or whatever are having on other people, right? Mm. Yeah, we are made for hard things. And one of the hard things I have to do right now is I've noticed we have been talking for a long time and oh. I wish that we could just keep on going. Um, in this world, it's so lovely to connect. Other things that we have to do. But um, I'm so excited mm-hmm. about some of the stuff you shared with the course that you're writing, the album. Is, is that on the horizon? Yeah, it's it's supposed to be. Uh, we've been having some troubles with the mastering process, but it, it will be released soon. So. Cool, yeah. you're at mastering. That's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I can't wait. I, I I have an expectation that it will, or a sense, actually, not an expectation that it will inspire me somewhat because <laughs> I need some inspiration uh, with the music at the moment. Nice. Um, so, how can people find you? I mean, I found you by googling the Knowing Podcast, and I found mm-hmm. that website. Is that the best yeah. way? Uh, yeah, the knowing.ca, um, cielgrove.com, and then I, I'm on Instagram at cielgrove is, is probably the easiest way. If um, I love getting feedback from the podcast or from people using the decks and stuff. So please, definitely, if anyone's listening and they have any any feedback, you want to tell me which cards you burnt, please definitely let me know. <laughs> so. I, uh, oh, I, uh-huh. yeah, I, um, I did yeah. have a look at your website. Oh, wow she puts out new cards that's that's something I haven't heard of before that's that's cool (laughs) it was it's just yeah I mean because the ego card has this image of Trump on it which I mean in my innate trickster I mean seriously Sarah the day that I came up with it I'm sitting up in my art room and I'm like you know, I need a, an image for ego. And I was like, what better image, you know? And it's just this really grotesque picture of him on a side profile. And I mean, people were pissed. Like, this is not a sacred person. He shouldn't be in a sacred deck, you know? And I got really intense feedback. And then other people who were, totally thought it was hilarious. And I was like, okay, you get this, right? But um, I suppose the the lack of relevancy, thankfully, for this person, I am not some, like, Trump supporter or whatever they're called, um, QAnon. I don't think that he's, you know, any less or more sacred than anyone else, but um, I've redone the ego card to with a, an imagery that I'm hoping will allow people to engage with it a little bit more easily. So, and not maybe have that same visceral response of like, Ooh, I need to burn this. So. Well, it doesn't seem to be current anymore. So. <laughs> no, thankfully, I don't think I've seen his name in the news for a while. It's pretty, pretty nice to not have to engage with that. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having so many inspiring ideas. I know that I'll be listening again and again when I feel that uh, I've run out of your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> 
Awesome. Uh, thank yeah, you. Thank you so amazing. much. I really love, I love meeting people around the world. Like it's the, again, as you mentioned, you know, like all the downsides of what we've created, but oh my God, the technology and the ability to like feel this sense of unification with people, you know, halfway around the world. It's just, it's astounding. So thank you. So we said goodbye and then we kept talking because there was so much to talk about. And then we got onto the topic of science and spirituality and I couldn't resist. I had to record another bit um, and then later I wish I'd kept recording. And so here's a little bit on science and spirituality as well. The idea though, that um, I've been thinking about this a lot actually, Sarah, is that science came along and science is this beautiful system of finding so-called truth, right? Which is this, you know, objective truth, truth that cannot be denied, truth that is, you know, consistent throughout time and whatever. And, and even though science knows inherently that truth changes, you know, there's this expectation that you can find truth. I think that science um, obliterates the individual, you know, and because if you don't see yourself in a data set within a scientific study, you, you basically don't validate yourself. And this is what we look at. Every oppressed, you know, group didn't show up in data, basically, you know, like you, you weren't counted, you weren't valued. I mean, tr truly, if you weren't a white, cis, hetero, whatever male, you, you didn't, you weren't represented in the data a lot of the time. And so there's this backlash in a sense of going, no, I, I want to matter. I want my truth to be, to be heard, right? Which is perfectly understandable. But we can't go so far to that side to say, oh, it's only subjective truth that matters. You know, it's, it's this question of how do those things actually coexist? How do we work with scientific fact and, and understanding, but also recognize that it cannot fully um, express what life is like for an individual. You know, that also has to be uh, assisted in development and in articulation and understanding for the individual of like, what does it feel like to be Sarah? You know, like what, what is the, the essence of you? That's not going to be ever assessed accurately through a scientific study, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not true and it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. And again, this is a thing that we have not done. Scientific thought and methodology came in and we went like hog wild with it. And we're like, this is the only truth. This is absolutely the truth, you know, and we've moved away from religion and, and the meaning that we got from that and spiritual practices. But now we're seeing this renaissance, obviously, of, of spiritual practice, of, of individual, you know, uh, autonomy and identity and stuff, which is natural, but it's like a, a pendulum swing to that side. And how do we settle back into an experience where we can uh, coexist with objective and subjective truth. And, and like, what is that even going to look like? I don't particularly know. I mean, I, I know what it looks like on, on my personal experience, in my personal experience, but like as a collective, I don't know. Right. Today's music track was written in BC, Canada, a song written during a three-month residential yoga development course at Yashodra Ashram. We worked a lot with symbology, and the symbol of the freesia arose for me during one of our foundational workshops. I associate it with spring at home, 
And at that stage, when I'd lived away from my homeland of New Zealand for several years already, I was wistfully remembering walks in the winter, spotting the first freesias in the gardens of the neighbourhood. The delicate nature of their sweet scent prompted these lyrics, since the course itself was a distinct phase of getting in touch with essence nature. Here is Song of Freesias. Song of free 
Unraveling Midlife is brought to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand by www.sarahmarlowspence.com Theme music is by Sarah Marlow Spence and Saraswati Marie Willis and art by Samantha Hepburn. <laughs>